I've bedded down in um, there's there's in the in the UK in the hills here. There's um, there's a few old aircraft wreckages from World War Two um, because of bad weather when planes sort of went down. Uh, I've bedded down within the wreckage of a World War Two bomber. Uh, that was very interesting. Episode 306, Phoebe Smith is here to tell us about extreme sleeping and wilderness weekends. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville. Hi, friends. Thank you again for listening to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. We actually mentioned this upcoming show some while back on our episode 300, so you've been primed for it, and it's just because it's such a creative idea. This podcast is on extreme sleeping. Extreme sleeping with Phoebe Smith. Now, Phoebe Smith grew up in Wells, and she currently lives in the UK, but she has been a world traveler. She's an author of seven going on eight books, actually eight books starting this week, uh, public speaker and presenter. I'm excited to have her on the show to explain to us what extreme sleeping is. Phoebe, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> oh, you bet. It's our pleasure. It's going to be a lot of fun to talk about this. And I know that our listeners already are saying, what? What is extreme sleeping? And it really is adventurous. So um, we're not going to put everyone to sleep today, are we? No, no, that's not my intention. But I want to excite people about sleeping and to show that you can really kind of maximize that time when you're sleeping to do something really adventurous. Okay, so what is an extreme sleeper? You got to fill us in. Okay. So extreme sleeping is just sleeping in the most extreme, um, wildest kind of place that you possibly can find. Um, And that doesn't have to be that far away. So some of the, I've slept in some really extreme places overseas. So I've been to Antarctica and slept out on the ice there. I've been up to Svalbard, um, which is an island way up just before you get to the North Pole and slept inside a glacier. So they're really extreme examples of extreme sleeping. But you don't have to go that far. So other things can be. I slept at all the extreme points of mainland Britain, which is my home country. Um, And some of those are quite extreme because they're on the edges of a cliff. Others just happen to be on the edge of a town. Um, So it can be as extreme as you like. It really is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, And you can really just have some fun with it. That is fun. Now, you've written a lot of books on uh, how to engage with nature and camp and stuff like that. We'll get to some of those books a little bit later on in the show. But uh, Mm -hmm. you actually have a lot to say about this subject. It's not as simple as just go find a, a wild place to sleep. This is really about more of taking advantage of of sleeping in nature to and kind of enlarge your life and have different life experiences, right? Oh, definitely. I mean, so for me, it, it when I first started doing it, I didn't really get why people went and camped in the outdoors and did that. I was never really into into that sort of thing. I never did it. I, I sort of thought, well, I've got a perfectly comfortable bed at home. Um, but then the more I got into it, the more I realized that when you spend time in a place, once it goes dark, once everyone else has gone home, you just appreciate it 
in a whole different way and you you're really immersed in it and by doing it by yourself which is the key thing for my extreme sleeping I like to do it by myself um you just you remove any distraction between you and the nature that you're in and you just notice things you you hear the wildlife coming out you you smell the forest you take in the smells you take in all the sounds you hear leaves falling in forests you know you hear waves you know lapping against the shore if you're next to a lake if you're on top of the mountain you hear the wind and the different sound it makes um and, and so you just you just appreciate it on a whole other level the small talk's all gone um and 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 so for me it's kind of capturing that and it's also about pushing my boundaries and you know at first sleeping on, on my own in a strange place was really uncomfortable but it by doing it and surviving it I wanted to do it more because I got that boost in confidence and that boost in confidence then fed into my life when I'm not sleeping um, and that's the really key thing it's this combination of immersing yourself and really appreciating the environment you're in but then also taking the confidence that doing that gives you and feeding that back into your everyday life. Uh, and, and I always say the more that I've pushed my, my sleeping, um, the more successful I've been in my awake life. <laughs> mm, that's really, really fun. And here's something I really like about this. I mean, you're a, you're a real adventurer. You've done a lot of really cool adventurous things. But pointing out to people that just choosing where to sleep and doing it alone can just that much makes such a huge difference. So a lot of our guests, they say, well, yeah, I've slept at, at high camp on Everest. But mm, it wasn't about yeah. the sleeping. It was about being on Everest, right? Or <laughs> I, yeah, I camp yeah. while I bike around the world or across you know, a country or something like that. But it really wasn't about the sleeping at that point. It was about this huge you know, biking across a, a nation. Of course. But what I love yeah. about your approach is that it works for everybody. You don't have yeah. to say, I'm taking on a massive adventure here. This is a place where people who have not been adventurous, who think that maybe that's not really a, a core part of their personality, it gives them a place yeah. where they can go have an adventure that can be really meaningful, and it might open up all sorts of doors to a, a different lifestyle. Oh, definitely. And it's it's really is that simple. Of It, it doesn't have to be this big, epic journey where you're doing lots of this pushing yourself and sleeping you know in difficult places or difficult conditions it's it really is about just fitting them in I mean for me it all started um when I first experienced it was when I was living over in Australia and a friend persuaded me to go and sleep in what's called a swag bag uh which is a bit like what we'd call a bivouac sack or a, an emergency sort of bag and, and it's kind of a rollout bed basically that you just kind of slip your sleeping bag inside and that's all that essentially protects you from the elements and you gaze up and look at the stars and I I sort of agreed to it we went to the middle of the red center um to near Uluru or Ayers Rock as some people know it and um and the the guide who took us suddenly started listing everything that could kill us uh -oh. I mean there were every <laughs> there were snakes there were scorpions there was spiders there was even ants that if they bit you enough times they'd kill you I think it was like 15 or 20 times you you die because of venom and I remember thinking oh my goodness I've I've never done this back home and why am I doing it now when everything can kill you? Like in the UK, there's nothing like that. You know, this is insane. Um, and I wasn't really sure if I wanted to do it, but I did it because I think when you travel, you have a tendency, like you said, if you're, you know, I'm going to cross this continent or I'm going to go to Everest Base Camp, you know, you, you push your comfort zone for some reason when, you, when you're a tourist. 
And so my whole philosophy after that was I had this most incredible night. I, I, I got to like watching the light play on the rocks. I got to watch the stars come out. I've never seen so many stars. And then I got to wake up in the morning and see the light change again and know that I'd sort of done this thing I never thought that I would be able to do and that I would survive it. And and I wanted to almost bottle that feeling and, and feel it again. And so when I finally got back to the UK, back to my home, um, I thought, how can I do this again? You know, it's classic when you've been traveling or having adventures, you come back and you don't have much money and you have to get a, a job. And, you know, so you suddenly you don't have much time either. Um, and so the best thing I could think to do was to go out and go and sleep somewhere. And rather than making it about the, the actual adventure of where you're going, it was more about that night, what you're going to do with that night. Um, and where are, we, where are you going to push the, the limit? And for me, it was pushing the limit of going by myself and, and forcing myself to go and experience it on my own. Um, and, and just by doing that, just one night in the, in the wilds of Wales um, just completely changed me and completely changed my outlook and made me realize, actually, you can fit these little miniature adventures within a full-time job, within a normal life. They don't have to be big epic you know ocean crossing continent cycling you know they don't have to be that we can all experience it even just with one night outdoors oh yeah i totally agree and as you're saying that i started thinking of all the different places that i've slept and i never thought of it to be about the sleeping itself but that's where the Mm. memories are when i think of well i went on this backpacking trip but man when i slept in that one place that was the most amazing night there's a lot yeah, of yeah. memory, and I know it's funny, we don't remember much when we sleep, but it's it's the going to sleep <laughs> and the waking up, I think. You know, a lot of uh, the memories that I have are centered around, man, that was a crazy night that night, you know? Exactly, and also it can be about what I call in the morning is I call the reveal moment, because often when I head into these places, like, I don't always, I've not always been to them before. You know, often I'll hear about something or I'll be looking at a map and think that looks like it could potentially be a good spot. And by the very nature of it, so here in the UK, wild camping as it's called, or, you know, my extreme sleeping, it's often done in places where you're legally supposed to ask permission before you go and sleep there because it's private property. That is obviously wildly impractical and often impossible to even find out who owns the land. So to get around that, you basically just go um, when it's late and you leave when it's early and obviously you pack out, you know, the, the same rules apply as when you go anywhere in a wild place, you know, you pack everything out that you took in or your, or your rubbish or your trash um, and you leave a place in a better state than when you found it. Right. And, and so, you know, often I'll head in and it's, it's dark or at least going dark and I won't fully appreciate where I am and I'll kind of either put my tent or my busy bag down and I'll nestle in for a night. And then it's in the morning when I unzip my tent door or sort of open the the bivy flap and suddenly see this amazing place. And it could be on the top of a mountain. It could be by a lake with a big sort of rocky amphitheater in front of me. It could be overlooking the sea. And suddenly you get that reveal. and And it's almost like this little this little slice of nature that's just put there just for you. And, you know, you'll rest so early. You'll wake up naturally when when it gets light. And it does feel very much like a, a privileged moment that's just between you and this scene that you find yourself in. Um, and, and you remember that. You almost do that for that morning moment, that reveal moment as well. Mm, I totally get that. I've experienced it several times. And it's it's probably my favorite part of backpacking. It's waking up yeah. oh. in the morning yeah. as the sun's coming up and experiencing what's around me. 
And uh, yeah, and and feeling, look what I've done. I've done this. I've spent the night here, and you know, other friends are still in bed. Their alarm might not have gone off yet, and and here I am in this amazing place. And it's just to me, it's almost infectious that feeling. I just want it again and again. I'm I'm an addict. <laughs> that's wonderful. So I think you've given us a good reason already for why people should try this. But if people haven't ever done it before and they're like, well, mm. I might give that a shot, what do they need to, to pull it off? Well, I always, my sort of secret weapon, if you like, is I always keep something that I call my go bag, um, either next to my front door or in the, in, the, in the back of my car. And it's there all the time. And it's basically a bag packed ready for a night out in the wild. Uh, and it, I, I either take a, a very small tent or a bivy bag, like I said, which is just a cover for your sleeping bag. Um, a good camping mat is really a must because you want to stay warm um, and equally a good sleeping bag. And I actually always take an inflatable pillow as well because I believe that if you have a good night's sleep, you have a better day the next day. Mm. So I always take that. And then just some warm layers, a stove for, you know, making yourself a hot drink. Um, and I always have more food than I think I'll need because there's nothing better than be sort of snuggled in your sleeping bag, clutching a hot drink with, you know, maybe a chocolate or, you know, if you like a little tipple of wine or a beer, you know, take something that you really enjoy as a treat with you. Um, and, and so you don't really need that much stuff. Um, and, but I keep it all ready, like I said, in this go bag. And I do it because if I've had like a really stressful day at work or all these deadlines coming in and then suddenly the weather window comes and it looks good and I just think I just need to get away from the city I need to just get away and experience something and and like I said you don't have to go far I mean sometimes I'll drive you know if I want to go to say Wales it's maybe four hours drive but equally I could go somewhere called the South Downs which are these kind of rolling chalklands and they're only an hour's drive away and within an hour I can be there sleeping on top of a hill with a view out and see the twinkling lights of the city way in the distance and it just it just kind of forces that perspective um, and you just, it just kind of resets your clock. And, and like I said, it can just be one night. It's not even that many hours when you think about it, but you can finish and be up in the morning and back at work the next day um, and just feel like it's all, everything is as, is as it should be again. It's all kind of reset your clock. Mm, that's really, really cool. You know, in the American West, we have a lot of what they call yeah. public lands. And it's yeah. legal to camp on these lands as long as you know the local regulations. Most of these places, all you have to do is is go, right? And, and wow. It, you're available to – it's legal, it's fine, you can do it. Um, but yeah. there are other places that are a little bit more challenging. The eastern United States, you have to find maybe a state park or something like that. Um, or you yeah. end up doing what you have to do in the U.K. often, which is you're going to sleep on someone else's private property. Now, that's – that wild camping seems a a little bit crazy because we don't have to do it much in the U.S., but in the U.K., yeah. I understand it's a lot more common because it's it's just kind of the requirement. It is, and we you know we're a, we're a hell of a lot smaller, <laughs> so um, we've we've got less sort of choice and less big state parks, and and but even in our I mean in we're lucky in the U.K. So in Scotland, you can wild camp legally pretty much anywhere. Uh, and there's also a national park in the south of England, uh, about sort of four or five hours drive from London called Dartmoor National Park. And that also, because of a really old bylaw, um, that also has the right way you can do it. But everywhere else, you know, even if it's a national park, you still have to ask for, for permission um, or you're supposed to. But I've been doing this for sort of 10, 12 years now. And, you know, I've never been asked to move on. And that's the worst that can happen, you see here. Someone will just say, 
someone will just tell you to move on. But I never have been asked to move on because even if I've run into rangers of the national parks who technically should be saying, oh, this is private land, did you get permission? They're not, they're just, you know, because I'm doing it the right way. I'm not... I'm not there causing a disturbance. I'm not littering. I'm I'm doing it and I'm enjoying it. And they can see that. And they're actually just really thrilled that people are out there enjoying it. Because the really sad thing is, as as a whole society in the developed world, we are not exercising enough. We are not getting in the outdoors enough. Um, you know, kids now are not exercising even a third of how, how I did when I was a kid. You know, we just sort of go out, head into the woods or head up into the hills and, and you'd just be there until you had to come home to get something to eat. But now it's all sitting in front of screens and looking on phones and social media and it's, it's all this and, and people are sort of forgetting how important it is to go outdoors. Mm, yeah, I agree 100% with that. Absolutely. You know what this reminds me of is that the little kids at some age, they, they almost always say, Mom, Dad, I want to go sleep in the backyard. You know, it's their big camping yeah. event. It's this major adventure to go sleep in the backyard. That's how yeah. it starts. But, you know, as an adult, we can still do that. And it's still amazing. Um, exactly. I, and that, that, that is the thing, isn't it? It's that, it's that when you're a kid, you do ask and you, you do go do that. And it feels adventurous. And then we grow up and we forget that actually, even if that's how you start, you could literally start tonight by just thinking, I really want to try it, but I'm a bit scared about where to, what to do. Just go camp in your yard. Just like get used to camping outside and listening to the sound. That's a great way to start. I also liked what you said about you don't have to take a lot of stuff. The less you take, probably yes. the more enjoyable the experience is going to be, matter of fact. And if we over-prepare, then it becomes too laborious, and that keeps us from doing it. But your go-bag exactly. idea wants- is awesome. Yeah, I mean, because who wants to lug around a massive backpack? Because it, it does, like, you're right, it hampers your enjoyment completely. Um, and, and if you can sort of fine-tune what you need uh, into this little go-bag that you keep ready to go at all times, you just remove the excuse. Because I don't know about you, but I hate packing. I mean, I travel a lot, and I still hate packing. So for me, the, the go-bag is so important because it removes the excuse not to go and do it. And that's the thing. We'll always find an excuse because, oh, it looks a bit cold, or, oh, I don't know what I've done with my sleeping bag. Or, whereas if you keep it all together, that's all removed. You literally just have to pick it up and just go. Well, let's talk about some of the places where you have done extreme sleeping. Okay, because you already mentioned inside of a glacier, Antarctica. Um, take yeah. us to one of these places and tell us about your experience. Oh, well, I'll tell you about the, uh, the glacier one because that was, that was more recent and that was pretty incredible. So this was, um, basically up in this place called Svalbard, which is, um, sort of a, a series of these islands that sort of owned and looked after by Norway, but by several countries really. And like I said, they're the last stop before you go to the North Pole. They're about a three hour flight from Oslo in Norway. And um, basically, there's a, a town there um, called uh, on, on the island called Spitsbergen. This town is called Longubian. And it's basically the the northernmost inhabited, permanently inhabited place in the world. Wow. And um, and behind this, this small town, you know, there's not that many people that live there, just a couple of thousand people. Behind that, there's um, a glacier. And of course, even though it's that far north, so you think, oh, it's cold all the time. In the summer, it actually warms up enough that the top layer of snow that sits on this glacier, because of course the glacier is compressed snow, um, it starts to melt. And so in the summer, 
as this snow melts, it seeps either side of the glacier and it weaves through the ice below and it cuts these meltwater channels through the ice. So, of course, you can't go in then, but then come the winter when it freezes again, the water all goes and it's left these tunnels within the glacier that you can climb down inside of and go and explore. Um, and some university students, there's a university up in this place, um, they're studying climate change because the best way to study it is to the, the glacier, as I said, it's compressed snow, so it's trapped all these air bubbles inside it that tell you about what the atmosphere was like, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago when this started to be formed. Um, and so they were going down in it and just camping because they couldn't be bothered hauling everything back up and going back to their digs. And they realized that if you sleep in this glacier, even though it's winter, you're doing it, you know, outside it can be sort of minus seven, minus 15, but inside the glacier, it's about minus two, which is sounds cold still. And this is centigrade I'm talking, um, right. but it's, it's, you know, it's still below freezing, but it's much warmer than it is outside. So as long as you take a good sleeping bag and a good camping mat uh, and a stove to kind of, you know, make yourself some food and hot drinks, you can be really, really cozy in there. So uh, I was sent up there um, with a what's called a pulk, um, which is, you know, like that you pull all your equipment on. Um, I had to have a guide take me up because you around um, uh, Longubian, which apparently the polar bears don't cross. I don't know how they know it's there. There's nothing on the ground. But once you pass this point, you have to take either a gun or someone who knows how to use one um, in case a polar bear comes near you. And so I needed a guide to take me up to access inside the glacier and then went to sleep inside it. And because I wanted to experience it on my own, he, he slept further down uh, the tunnel than me. And, uh, and I remember it was absolutely incredible. You know, I, I put candles behind some of the ice. So, you know, I had this flickering or orange light. Mm. It was so, so quiet. The occasional creak from the, from the, from the glacier. Uh, and then I remember I woke up in the middle of the night and I was convinced that there was a polar bear had got in. There was <laughs> this like strange noise. And I was lying there thinking, oh my goodness, what do I do? Like, what if it gets Peter, who's my guy? Like, you know, I don't know how to work the gun. Like, what am I going to do? And then it took me a good sort of 10 or 20 minutes to realize that the noise was actually Peter snoring somewhere down <laughs> the glacier. And the sound was carrying down. I thought, this is ridiculous. Go back to sleep, Phoebe. <laughs> um, but it was incredible. And again, it was that feeling in the morning of, of waking up and emerging from the glacier, just kind of popping out of the snow, being above this little town in, in sort of the middle of the Arctic, way above the Arctic Circle, and just going, wow, that, you know, on so many levels, that was a seriously cool place to spend the night. Oh, yeah, that sounds so delightful. Fall is the best time to start thinking snow, and Bentgate Mountaineering is ready to help you get prepared for your epic winter. Come check out the latest in Alpine Touring, Telemark, NTN, and Splitboarding gear. Brands like Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Technica Blizzard, Arcteryx, Mammoth, Solomon, Vole, Never Summer, Jones, and BCA. And you need to be safe out there. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags, and they are ready to help you educate yourself on snow safety. You can also rent skis, boots, splitboards, beacons, shovels, and probes at Bentgate. What's more, they host free demo ski days at local resorts so you can try out the latest gear. 
Stop by BentGate in Golden, Colorado, or go to BentGate.com to check out your new gear as well as to get updates on all of their events. Hey, I wanted to give a heartfelt shout out to Jeremiah, Chris, Michael, Joseph, Mandy, Clara, Christy, and William. These are all either patrons or members of our ASP member deals site. Thank you guys for helping to support the show, and I hope you're doing good things with your stickers. I know our dogs are loving all their new pets. If anyone else wants to help the show, make sure you go to either members.adventuresportspodcast.com or patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. Thanks, guys. We've always tried to get at least one winter camp in each winter, and we've done snow caves oh, yeah. and different types of tarp shelters, and, and we've done it with just yeah. tents and, you know, whatever. It, we do it a variety of different ways. But I have to tell people, yeah. camping in those conditions can be delightful. You just have to have the right clothing, the right gear. Yes. But it can yeah, be so definitely. delightful because wintertime is just magical for being out oh, you know, in yeah. nature. So nice. And, and waking up and having that, that what we call hoar frost on the outside of your tent, you know, when it's sort of frozen and it sort of sparkles, that's really magical. And the, the, the top tip I would say for that, so for me, I love to be warm. Don't get me wrong. I, I love going out in winter. I love wild camping in winter, um, but I like to be warm. And so what I always do is before I go to bed on a winter camp, I always boil some water in my stove and I fill my water bottle obviously it takes extremely hot and extremely cold um temperature liquids i fill it with boiling hot water and then i wrap it either in my fleece or in a sock and then i use it as my hot water bottle and there's just nothing better and then the great thing is you've purified that water because you've boiled it and when you wake up in the morning and it's cooled right down you can just drink that water straight away so it's like a double thing it's like you've warmed it and purified it it's going to keep you warm and then you're going to be able to drink it in the morning so that would be my top tip for comfort during winter camping you know it's funny because i camped in the winter for many years before I picked up on that trick and it made all the difference. Yeah. I'm like, what was I thinking? The, the yeah, last why time, haven't I been doing this before? Oh, I know. We were in a, an extreme <laughs> blizzard. Um, you were talking about oh. negative two centigrade. Well, it was negative two Fahrenheit. So we're, we're talking about, you know, it was, it was well below zero and it was snowing yeah, yeah. at a rate of uh, probably close to two inches an hour. And so it's a heavy wow. snowfall. And the wind was howling. And uh, before we went to bed, we took the time to melt enough snow to heat up the water yeah. and took mm-hmm. the hot water bottle into our sleeping bags. Yeah. And I was like, oh, why did I not do this before? It is the best way to, <laughs> to warm up and just be cozy, you know? Yeah, you just suddenly feel like, oh, yeah, it's all okay now. I'm warm. I can, you know, you keep moving around your sleeping bag, warm your feet up, move it, put it on your back, if your back's, you know, oh, it's, it's fantastic. It but really then you're right, so many people don't know about it. Yeah, <laughs> it's just so obvious, but it's not obvious if you haven't thought of it. So, And it stays warm no. for a long time. It won't be all night. It does. But no. it will it'll keep you for warm. For long the, enough. The main thing is to get thoroughly warmed up as you're going to sleep. 
Oh, definitely. And like before you go into bed, you know, don't be standing around, you know, do some star jumps, you know, have a hot drink, anything to warm you up. So you don't you don't just sort of sit and get cold, you know, put some layers on. But then I always say the key thing is a lot of people make the mistake of leaving loads of layers on and getting into their sleeping bag. And so then you're just trapping that cold air with you. I always take the layers off and sleep in my base layers always because then then you, that's your warmest layers and it's reflecting your own heat your own body heat within that sleeping bag as long as like i said you have a good sleeping bag and a good camping mat as well yeah that that just requires the right equipment again um but that yeah, really works yeah. if you have the right sleeping bag my sleeping bag's a little bit wimpy so i have to wear a lot of layers <laughs> inside of it because it just doesn't it doesn't do it otherwise but that's okay you know it works yeah, for me yeah that's okay so yeah. very, very fun. So that glacier, wow, and so far north. Now, what time yeah. of the year was this? Obviously, you said it was cold enough that the water wasn't running anymore, but... Yeah, it was end of March. End of March. End of so March. So winter. So you're going to get yeah. um, quite a lot of sunlight at the end of March, right? Oh, yeah. It was nearly it was nearly 24-hour daylight. They were getting ready for, I think it was about two weeks after I left, um, it was going to be, you know, the coming of the sun that would then stay. Um, so, yeah, it, it was, I, I mean, the weather wasn't fantastic. It was it was snowing quite a lot, so it was kind of gray. So it never really got dark, but it never really got light. <laughs> it was right. just kind of this consistent gray. Um, but, oh, it didn't matter. It was simply incredible. Oh, that's fun, too. I For people that have never had to sleep through the midnight sun, that's quite the experience. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you just don't get tired. This is the problem. When you go somewhere like that um, or anywhere, you know, in the Arctic North, um, you, you don't get tired because you, that natural kind of melatonin that your body releases to send you to sleep, it doesn't do it. You have to, you know, you know, wear an eye patch or something to make yourself sleep, you know, because I, I, I'm always so excited when I travel and, when, and I always have this fear that I'm missing out. If, when, as soon as I go to bed, something amazing will happen. So it's even worse for me then, because it's like, well, there's no point going to bed. It's not even getting dark. <laughs> right. Well, Travis Which isn't and easy I... when you're an extreme sleeper. <laughs> sure. Travis and I um, kind of go back and forth. When he camps, I'm speaking of my co-host, Travis, uh, he likes to have yeah. a tent. He likes the shelter of the tent, yeah. especially from the bugs, right? Yeah. And I prefer just a tarp. And the reason is because I can yeah. see out. I really like seeing yeah. out, and I like the fresh air. Now, a tarp isn't as good of shelter as a tent, obviously, but I love the idea no. that I can see what's going on around me, and when yeah. I wake up in the morning, I can see. I mean, one thing I've mentioned on the show before is uh, a couple summers back, we woke up one morning with a baby moose and a cow moose in our camp, and had we been wow. in a tent, we would have heard them, you know, but we wouldn't yeah. have been able to yeah. unzip a zipper and see them because they, that would have scared them away. But being in the tarp, we could just watch. And it was so fascinating, yeah. so beautiful, you know. So what yeah. about you? Do you prefer to be in a tent? Do you prefer to to not use the tent? What's your what's your way? Oh, well, I have, so I like several things. So I like, when I know the weather's going to be bad, obviously, I mean, if you never went out in bad weather in the UK, you wouldn't go out that much. So you have to be prepared sometimes to go out in bad weather. Um, so a tent's great for that because it's really cozy. You're going to keep dry. And yes, you might not see as much, but, you know, it works really well for that. If it's going to be a clear night with stars 
or you know you're going to get a great sunset or sunrise, you cannot be a busy bag, like I said, which is kind of a cross between um, a, a tent and a top. Or you might sometimes use a top with a busy bag because what a busy bag basically does is cover your sleeping bag and make it waterproof um, so you're not going to get wet, other than you might get a bit of dampness through condensation, obviously, from your own body heat. Um, but they're really, really good. And they've come on a long way. You can get busy bags, which would be perfect for someone like yourself, because they kind of they they're that waterproof sack, but they also um, they zip up uh, a bug sheet over your head end, so you can still see, but you're not going to get sort of eaten alive by all the uh, the horrible biting insects. Um, so they're a really good option for people who are a bit nervous about being out in the open because of the bugs and, and they just want that sort of layer but they can still see which is the main reason why you'd sleep in a bivy um, a tarp like you said is great when you really want to immerse yourself uh, in the outdoors and then also recently I've discovered hammocking which I find is an amazing way to kind of get a bit of both because you can kind of wrap yourself up in the hammock and be completely concealed if you fancy that or you can kind of drop a, an arm or a leg over and, 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 and be watching everything going by and you can get a bug net um, to go over the top of a hammock so and put a tarp over it if it rains so they're also really great if you have the trees. Yeah, yeah, that's really, really fun. Travis recently took up hammocking, and he just swears by it. I've just kind of dabbled with it a little bit, and I really yeah. like sleeping on the ground. It's just part of part of my thing. But yeah, um, yeah, he loves the hammock for the comfort for one. And yeah, it, and and the the motion of of being swayed to sleep can be really, really soothing. That's neat. So I always think, well, I am kind of having to sleep in a U shape, and I don't know if I'd be comfortable all night if I have to stick in that U shape. Does that bother you? <laughs> um, I, I tell you what, the first time I did it, I got really cold feet because of that. Um, and I didn't sort of, re I was really scared to kind of move around. I felt like it was almost like I was in a Pilates class, and I was continuously having to like, balance myself using my core muscles and um you know it was like that but then the more I've done it the more I've kind of relaxed about it a bit I'll you know like I said throw a leg out I'll, I'll move around my position I'm much more confident in one um and, and I I do always wear really warm socks because feet can get cold well everyone that does a lot of hammocking is is laughing at me right now saying well he's really a novice hammocker he doesn't know if you sleep diagonally in a hammock and you have a hammock that's large enough that you can, it actually levels you out. You can sleep almost flat if you get diagonal. But if you roll oh, yeah. over the wrong you way, then you're back the right into position. a U. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It, you know, it's one of those things. And, and like you said, some people, they're never going to be sold on it. Other people, you know, like yourself, I mean, I'm the same. I, I do like to be on the ground as well. But I, I do like to vary it up. I, you know, like I said, you know, sleeping's all about making it a bit exciting, a bit adventurous. So, I'll try anything. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, how about, just for fun, list some other places that you've slept so we can just kind of get a feel for it, different adventurous uh, ways that, that you've encountered nature. Um, so more recently, I've got into portal ledging, um, and particularly portal ledging in trees. So this is a portal ledge, which is like what the big wall climbers uh, used such as the ones doing the big wall say in Yosemite that sort of place uh, where it's kind of a rigid ledge that you you sort of rig up using ropes and and carabiners and and, and kind of hook yourself up somewhere um, so I've been doing that in trees recently to get height um, and being among the canopy and seeing the birds you know you see the birds around you maybe in the evening you see some bats it's you know and and again it's that swaying movement so I've been doing that 
Um, I've bedded down in um, there's there's in the in the UK in the hills here. There's um, there's a few old aircraft wreckages from World War Two. Um, because of bad weather, when planes sort of went down, uh, I bedded down within the wreckage of a World War II bomber. Wow. Uh, that was very interesting. Um, and a real, really atmospheric place. And people often go and leave poppies there. So it's kind of this misted, and it always seems to be misty whenever you go there. Um, and, and, and you don't get this shot of red from poppies that people have left behind. And it, it's very, very atmospheric. Um, I've slept in, um, there's some, um, some places that are kind of naturally formed shelters, which there's a, there's a word called Hoff, uh, and not as in David Hasselhoff, but just Hoff. Uh, and it comes from a Scottish word, and it's basically um, anywhere where you can kind of sneak in your, um, your, your sleeping bag to a rocky overhand that would protect you from the elements. Um, or it can be, um, there's one in Scotland, uh, in, there's a national park called the Cairngorms, which is up near a town called Aviemore. And there's one called the Shelterstone. And it's basically a giant boulder broke off from the top of a cliff, like thousands of years ago. And where it landed on the slopes below, it landed on top of other rocks that created this chamber underneath it. And you can fit about five or six people in uh, quite comfortably. And, you know, you can sit up. You can't stand up, but you can sit up. There's even a, a guest book in it. And it's the um, the founding place uh, where the, the oldest rock climbing club in Britain was was started. Wow. Um, and, and, and you can go and, and, and sleep in under this shelter stone, uh, you know, and, or just visit it, you know, and have your lunch there. But it, it's just incredible. You suddenly feel very immersed in the landscape because you're just under this giant boulder that you have no business being under and it's it's just there and so are you um so that's been pretty cool i'll um i love going to sleep on the tops of mountains because you get the really extreme weathers but also the amazing views um and then the other thing which i i've been into you know like i said the last sort of decade and and wrote one of my books on is something that we have in the uk which is called a bossy um now um bossies were um they sort of they've been going just over 50 years now um, and basically what they were is um they're mainly in scotland but there are some in wales and some in england as well and these are old buildings that were um unlike you know you get you get huts in the wilderness all over the world you know you get them in the u.s for instance you know say if you're walking the appalachian trail or pacific Coast trail, you, you get these huts that are put there for hikers to use right but the difference is in the, in the uk these boffies which are essentially huts um none of them were ever made for walkers these all had prior uses um and basically agricultural practices changed so you'd have farmhands living in them you'd have gamekeepers who needed to be out in the wild of these huge swathes of land in, in in you know these big estates you'd have um miners cottages or miners bunk houses which would be up on the moors um, you'd have there's one um, which was a former Coast Guard lookout station. There's even one called the Schoolhouse, which used to because obviously you got all these sort of communities spread out in the Scottish Highlands, and none of them could get to a city to be taught. What they would do is they would kind of get a teacher to live in this kind of little wooden hut, which they call the schoolhouse, and the, the the children from the local kind of estates would all have to walk miles a day to go and all be taught in this classroom. Now, of course, when all this ended, when, you know, people weren't living out in these in these wilds anymore uh, or weren't working in the mines anymore, they could have all just fallen into disrepair. 
but this volunteer group got together and decided, hey, wouldn't it be really, really cool if we can preserve these and use them for, you know, to be able to stay in these wild places in, in sort of relative comfort. Um, I say relative comfort because these are like stone tents, you know, there's no electric or anything like that. Sometimes there's a stove. So you can you can heat the place, you know, like a wood burning stove, but you have to take in your own wood or coal or what have you to, to heat it. Um, but they're essentially just providing a bit of shelter for when the elements get really, really wild. Um, but they, they, they mean that you can access and stay in some of the most wildest places. And they all have this incredibly rich history. You know, you might go to one that a family had lived in for sort of 25 years during the, the end of the 18th century. Um, you might go into one where all these workers would go after they'd had a hard day in the mine. Uh, or you might go into one which has got this 180 degree panoramic view over the, the end of the Isle of Skye. Um, and, and you can watch for whales. And, and the amazing thing about them is they are they are free to use and they are funded entirely by donation and they are looked after and maintained entirely by volunteers so it's a oh, very quirky yeah a very quirky system and it's it's very unique to britain as well um and and like i said it's been it, they've been doing this for over 50 years and i hope they carry on more and, and that's why i wrote this book called book of the bossy because it was like a celebration of these shelters and there used to be a network that no one talked about it. it was kind of like a clandestine secret you know if if you knew someone who knew one or you stumbled upon them, that's how you found it but obviously with the with the internet and social media they found that more and more people were kind of finding them and posting their whereabouts so they took the decision uh about five or six years ago now to say actually we'll we'll publish the location of these bosses we'll put a grid reference so people who can read maps will be able to find them um, and we'll tell people where they are. Um, and, and in doing so, and then in me writing this book to try and inspire people and say, did you know there's this network out there that you can access? Um, their membership has actually grown and, and the danger was the membership was getting quite old. But now there's younger people discovering them um, because they know about them. Um, and, and that, of course, then is more money going into looking after them, uh, which is really, really fantastic. We mentioned that we were going to start up a Facebook group for Adventure Sports Podcast listeners, and I wanted to tell you that it is up and active now. So if you go to Facebook and search Adventure Sports Podcast, you'll find our Facebook page, but you also now find the Facebook group for ASP. We'd love for all you guys to jump on there and uh, talk adventure and help each other out, maybe give some guidance and share some of the things that you guys have done. So do me a favor, go to the group, sign up, and let's chat. Kurt and I will be in there from time to time, and we, we want to get to know you guys. So we'll also be sending out a notice to everybody that subscribes to our mailing list, so you guys will get that link as well. Thanks for listening to the show and being awesome adventurers. The Bearline Plus by 180 Tech is the handiest Bearline utility cord system you can find. This is not your typical Bearline. Our lightweight cord system is designed to be compact, lightweight, frictionless, and very versatile. Don't risk losing your dinner. Hang it the right way. The Bearline Plus is designed to suspend food between two trees up to 40 feet apart and 15 feet above the ground with much less effort than other Bearlines. Not only does the Bearline Plus keep your food away from bears, it is designed to be useful for many other needs including a motorcycle and ATV recovery system, tie-downs, straps, backpack repair, guy lines for tarp or tent, a tow line, block and tackle, and much, much more. Find your Bearline Plus at 180tech.com or retailers near you.
Phoebe, I have to ask, it, it's a whole different type of adventure when you go into an old, call it a, a shepherd's shack or a miner's cabin or whatever, and you're going to spend the night there. There's so much history, and maybe not all of it good. Does it ever creep you <laughs> out a little bit? Uh, there is one. There's a particular bossy called Ben Alder Cottage, um, and it's rumored to be the most haunted bossy in the network. I mean, they all have a presence about them. You know, I think, I think anywhere that's got that much history and that much of a of a past to it has a has a feeling. But mostly, it's good. But there's definitely, I wouldn't say in the whole bossy, but there's definitely one particular room which I wouldn't sleep in because it just didn't feel right to me. Mm. Um, but there's stories of grown men, you know, like hunters who've gone out there to maybe, you know, they're, they're shooting deer and they have run away and refused to, <laughs> to stay the night in the bossy. It, it's that much. And it came about from this story that was told about this gamekeeper who took his own life there, wow. which turned out to be, it was, it was written about in a Scottish climbing journal back in the early 1900s um, and everyone believed it then it turned out that this was just it was just a local rumor and the guy who they said who it was he ended up living till a ripe old age and his family actually wrote to the climbing journal and said no he died in a in a hospice with his family at the age of you know 90 or something so this is completely untrue but even though that's been kind of debunked as like this never happened there's still rumors there's still talk of someone who did this there's still talk of a crazy woman who lived there who you know kind of took her own child's life and I I don't know where these things come from but I think anywhere in a wild and remote place you just you just get that thing where people want to tell stories and they want to scare each other um (laughs) and and to, to me I find I often find that with the boffies it's the small ones that are just one room are always fine. It's the ones that are quite big. I mean, because these, these vary in size depending on what they were. So there's one that's the smallest in the network, which um, is next to a reservoir. And it used to be um, like a, a little room where they used to measure the water level. So it's really tiny. It sleeps three people at a push. Um, so you have to get there quick, you know, quite early on to get a place in it. Um, and that's great because it's tiny, it's very intimate, it feels very, you know, very much, you know, everything's fine. But then there are some that were like old family houses. There's one I can think of in Mid Wales called Nansidion. And Nansidion was a house where a family of six uh, lived. And there's a rumor about how, you know, the children, all but one child, were kind of wiped out by this really vicious strain of flu that was happening in the in the 18th century. Um, and so there's this awful sort of very tragic history to it. And there's so many rooms in this house that actually, if when I have stayed there, I've stayed in the smallest room and shut the door because I didn't like that feeling of I was in such this kind of big space. Wow. Um, but, the, the, uh, but I tell you, the great thing about these bosses is there's no there's no booking system. There's no way of planning or knowing whether you'll be able to stay. So when you go, it's all very serendipitous. You you don't know one if you'll be able to stay there. So you have to take a, a tent or a busy bag with you as a as a plan B. But also you don't know who you'll meet there. So you could go as I have done and stayed in the middle of of nowhere. You know, literally the middle of nowhere. The Scottish Highlands, miles and miles from the nearest road wonderful estate that you know I could never afford to buy and live in and I've had it completely to myself having said that I once went to one that's a very difficult bossy to get to it's called Glencore 
very difficult walk, very hard to get to. I went all the way there, battled the elements, plowed through a river that was in spate, so it wasn't really safe to cross. I had to haul myself out of that shivering, and I thought, finally, I'm at this bossy. I'm definitely going to have this one to myself. And then I spotted outside the door two boxes of beer, and I thought, <laughs> oh, my goodness, what am I going to find inside? And I went over to the door, and as it turned out, I crashed a stag party. Oh. And so you can only you can only imagine the jokes that ensued that here was this stripper who had turned up <laughs> oh, no. in the middle of nowhere um, for this stag party. So, well, you know, ready for this guy to get married. But I, I sort of was ever so slightly worried for the first few minutes. But then they were the nicest guys ever, and it was a two-room bossy. And they actually cleared out the other room completely so I could have my own room and my own privacy to sleep. Um, I was soaking wet through because of the weather and the river crossing. There was only two chairs in the other room. They made me sit in one closest to the fire. They made me food. They gave me some dry clothes to get changed into. They were just wonderful. And and, and that's the great thing about bossies. It, you know, in, in these wild places, I think it can bring out the very best in people. Um, and you can meet some amazing people you've got a lot in common with. And it just kind of re, reaffirms your faith in humanity again. Because when we're away from all that, from all the, all the computers, all the headlines, all the, everything, we're all kind of, I always find nature and wilderness is, is really the ultimate leveler. Um, because the outdoors really doesn't care whether you're young or old or fat or thin, rich or poor, man, woman, what religion you are, you know, the color of your skin. It doesn't care any about that. Bad weather in the outdoors will treat everyone the same. And it just levels us all completely. And and, and that's what I love. And so you can go and you can meet people from all over the world in these bothies and you share stories and you find out things. And it, it's just so mind opening. And you just can't control it. You just never know what's going to happen. And I think in this day and age, that's really rare. And it's something that, you know, really should cherish. Oh, yeah, I agree. You know, this is slightly off subject, but we have to throw it out there. Yeah. Before cell phones, before telephones yeah. even, when people yeah. were expecting to meet each other, then it was it was kind of, yeah. like, well, they're not here yet. We'll just wait. And I wonder if anything happened along the way. And then eventually people show up. And now... Everyone texts each other. Yeah. They call each other on the phone. If you're five minutes late, then you start to panic. Something's wrong. Um, <laughs> and we've become so paranoid about being able to plan every aspect yeah. of our lives. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh. I, I really oh, love what you're saying here, that there's some unknowns. The unexpected happens yeah. and that that's okay and that, that that has meaning. It really does. And I mean, I, so I've just come back from a, a mini expedition to Greenland. And um, so I walked something called the Arctic Circle Trail. Um, it's above the Arctic Circle. It's um, you take about eight to ten days. I took eight days doing this. You have to be self-sufficient the whole way, and you know you're out there in the wilds of Greenland. And uh, I went to do that, and I just didn't think about because I'm so used to going off in wilds on my own. And I just, you know, okay, I, I should tell people, and I normally do try and tell someone that I'm going and when I expect to be back. That sure. is sensible. That is what I would advise, but. I'm just so used to doing it. And then just when I get back telling people, oh, yeah, I've just gone and done this, that you sort of, you just get used to that. And I've always sort of prided myself in that I take responsibility for myself. And, you know, and I have to watch out for myself. And I'm, I am responsible for everything I do. And, and before I went, suddenly everyone was going, have you got a sat phone? Have you got a radio? Have you got this? How will you get help? And I, and I, I sort of, 
I did mildly panic just before I went thinking, oh my goodness, do I need that? And then it wasn't until I was walking it and I, I, I ran into a couple of people who were also walking it the other way. And they said, well, I guess you'll just have to make sure you don't do anything that requires help. And I was like, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm just, you know, perhaps having all these backups means we're a bit more reckless because we think, oh, we can just phone a friend and be sort of taken out of this scenario. Whereas actually, if no, it's all on you. You have to get yourself out of this we will get ourselves out of this. And, you know, don't take stupid chances. Don't do silly things. Um, and, and just be responsible for yourself. I, I, I read recently a news story we had over here where a woman went to a climbing wall and, you know, she'd had tuition and, uh, and that sort of thing. And she was on one of, the, on one of the, the cracks climbing and she fell and she hurt her back and she wanted to sue the climbing wall. Mm. And it just really angered me because, I'm, I, you know, they hadn't done anything wrong there's a risk. Everything has a risk. Life has a risk. Right. And you can, you can take no risk, but then you're not really going to live. So when you do take them, don't look to blame someone else if something goes wrong. Like, what's happened to this sense of responsibility for the self? And I really do believe that in the outdoors. You know, we've, you know things, things will happen. You'll make mistakes and things will go wrong, but you'll learn from them. And it's actually sometimes it is your fault. And, um, and that's how you learn from mistakes. And, and, and I think that's what's missing as well. It's that we're so risk averse now. We so want to control all the risk. And you simply can't do it. You've, you've got to accept that going to these places, there is an element of risk, but the rewards are so much greater. And, and that's why we're all here at the end of the day. Oh, yeah. And Phoebe, I have to say, just to be a little candid, a, a big part of who I am, who I understand myself to be, is tied to yeah. how I got myself out of difficult situations in the wilderness. And the reason exactly. for that is that, you know, you always try to be careful, but you find yourself stuck in a bad situation. And sorting out how to get out of that and how to be safe and how to survive and, and even be comfortable, what have you, it, it adds uh, a sense of uh, self and, and a sense of confidence, and I, I, it really, I think, impacts one's entire personality. And so it's important Definitely. to do it, is my point. And you, can, you can actually grow yourself a lot more than just saying, oh, I went out and had an experience. You actually build a confidence for the future that, that like you mentioned, it that, translates to the rest of life. Yeah, it really does. And it, it, I mean, it takes me back in mind to my very first solo camp. So I, when I decided I was going to go on, on this wild camp by myself, um, I decided to go to Snowdonia National Park, which, so I grew up just, you know, a few miles away from this wonderful national park we have in North Wales. I never went there because, you know, I, I of course I went there when I was dragged there as a, as a child and you're made to go there, but I never sort of chosen to go. So I, I felt like it was sort of a place that I knew because it was close to home. So I chose it for that reason. And then I started to tell, like, you know, friends and family, like, oh, I'm going to go and do this by myself. And I was just met with this barrage of, like, what I would say naysayers. You know, they were telling me everything was going to go wrong. Right. They, were gonna, they were telling me I was going to get attacked or I was going to get mugged or I was going to get eaten by a bear, which is ridiculous because we don't have bears <laughs> in the UK. <laughs> um, but, you know, everything that could go wrong, they said would go wrong. And I had to, first of all, point out that if they put themselves in the feet or in the personality of a would-be mugger, you know, you know, someone who's going to attack a lone woman, would would they wait in the hinterland of the mountains in case one happened to come by? Or would they <laughs> actually go to a major city on a Saturday night when there's lots of drunken ones running around the place? So I said, there's not going to be someone waiting for me out there. There's no one thinking I'm going to be there. 
But having said that, you know, it was a massive learning curve doing this first one on my own. I mean, there were some real highs in the fact that, you know, making that first summit on my own was incredible. Um, that, you know, choosing that place to, to, to spend the night, watching the sunset by myself without the distraction, amazing. There were things that obviously went wrong. I had, you know, I, I passed um, a youth group, which is the most scariest thing to ever pass as someone who's choosing to walk in the outdoors rather than being coerced by grown-ups <laughs> to make you go there. You know, all shouting at me. And I thought, oh, my goodness. I had that. You know, I was chased by a sheep. Uh, and I, I'm a, a vegetarian. And I was, yeah, by a sheep. Not a bear, but a sheep was out <laughs> to get me. I, I basically stumbled across this little lamb. And I thought, this is going to be great. I'm going to have this friend who's going to be my, my camping woolly guard dog. I'm going to feed it my, my meal scraps. And we're going to have so much fun. And then, of course, mummy comes along. And she was not having any of this. And she clean chased me down the path. Um, and I was just running away screaming, but I'm a vegetarian. And uh, I think they can sense that about me, the wildlife. <laughs> and uh, and so I thought, I can't believe I tell everyone I'm not going to get eaten by a bear, but a sheep apparently is going to attack me. So I had that happen. And then just as I, as the sun was setting and I was thinking, oh, everything's perfect. I got completely eaten alive by what we call midges, these horrible little biting insects that don't carry any diseases, but they're just horrible. Um, so I had that. It turns out, so when I drove to, to Wales um, from where I live now, just outside London, I drove there and it was pouring down with rain, thunder, storming, everything. Um, when I got there, the sun came out. And not only did the sun come out, it was the warmest I had ever seen it in my entire life, having grown up next mm. to it. The sun was blazing. So of course, I wasn't prepared for sunshine. So I got sunburned ridiculously <laughs> on my face and my arms. And then to make matters worse, I got a tick on me and I didn't know how to get it out. And then the final, the final thing was in the morning, I'd survived all this and I hadn't been able to eat probably because the midges were still out attacking me, biting insects going up my nose and in my eyes. And I finally sort of started my walk back out again, ran out of water and suddenly thought, oh no, I didn't have time to purify any water. So I thought, I'll boil some that I found in this in this kind of lake. Boiled it. And then, of course, it was boiling hot water. And I was sunburned in this ridiculously hot temperature, trying to force myself to drink this boiling hot water <laughs> to like kind of give myself some liquid. And honestly, all these things have gone wrong. And I finally got back to my car. And I, I remember really clearly sitting in that driver's seat and catching a glimpse of my crimson face covered in these bites um and looking the most unglamorous i've ever looked in my entire existence and i'm not a glamorous person anyway and i looked and caught sight of myself and i couldn't help but smile i could not wipe this grin off myself because for all i looked this way i knew there's been this kind of cataclysmic shift inside me because mm. i told myself i could do something that other people said i couldn't and I went and I did it and I didn't rely on anyone else and things went wrong. But I overcame each one of those things. And, and it was that feeling and that infant confidence boost that you just can't sort of put a price on. You can't kind of teach that. You have to go and experience it. That, that gave me this kind of buzz and this I want to do it again and I want to feel that again. And, you know, now I'm able to talk to, you know, someone like yourself and talk about the tip about filling up a, 
a, a bottle with boiling water to have a hot water bottle in winter. And, right. you know, these are hard one things that you've learned that give you the confidence. And each time you go and you learn something else, because you never stop learning, I don't think, in the outdoors, truly. You always pick no. up more things. Um, you know, and, and, and to have that confidence, like you say, that confidence, it changes you. And you think it's just a little thing, you know, you're overnighting on a mountaintop, you're going to have a weekend in the wilds of Scotland or, you know, something quite small. But these little things are all adding up. They're all changing you slowly and giving you this confidence and, and making you a, a more kind of well-rounded person who's taken responsibility for yourself and, 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 and can see the world as a bigger place and has opened your mind to meeting these new people in these different places. And I don't know about you, I find we, we talk to each other in the wilderness and we'll have conversations with strangers and you just can't do that in normal life in a city people think you're insane so right. um it, it just does all this for you and and, and then it, it feeds your confidence to to help you know your 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 regular sort of nine to five life so it's, it's almost like the five to nine existence that you lead doing these sleeps it, it feeds into the nine to five and makes that much much more successful and much more easy to cope with oh yeah yeah i, I couldn't agree more and i love the way that you point out Something as simple as sleeping in an unfamiliar place can change your whole life. That's wonderful. It really can. Yeah, yeah. that's what the Adventure Sports <laughs> Podcast is really about. It's about encouraging people, find their adventure, find their thing, and go do it because it makes such a difference. You know, before we close here, I want to make sure that we mention all your books. And let's do this okay. just kind of as a fun game. This is going to be a challenge for you. I'm going to name the book. Okay. I want you to give me one yeah. sentence that tells people what the book is for and about. Okay. Think we can okay. do it? Challenge accepted. Yeah, yeah okay. Well, challenge accepted. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to go back to, which one was your first one? The Camper's Friend? Is that, am I in the right order? That's the first one. Yeah. The Camper's um, Friend. That is, Camper's Friend is a lot of tips, words, and wisdom to inspire you to get out in a tent. Okay. So more of what we just heard from you just now. It's going to be a lot more of that. It's a lot more of that, and it's more, you know, like quotes, like, you know, little tidbits of information, a little bit about the history of camping and why we started sleeping outdoors again. Um, yeah, sort of a, a kind of potted, here's why camping's amazing. Okay, next book, The Joy of Camping. The Joy of Camping is very similar to that with all new stuff <laughs> and places to sleep, famous campers, um, and uh, a few more kind of bushcraft uh, tips on making your own gear and that kind of thing and mm. being able to navigate with the stars. Bushcraft, yeah. I love that. That That is yeah. another wonderful hobby we could do a whole show on. The Book of Bothy, you already mentioned to us. Book of Bothy, but just a quick recap. That's a celebration of 26 of our Bothies uh, uh, covering England, Wales, and Scotland to kind of be your jumping off point to go and experience the joy of discovering these wonderful shelters. So if you want to sleep in a haunted house, <laughs> get that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's that one. <laughs> okay, how about this one? Wilderness Weekends. Ah, so this is for people with full-time jobs like me who want to go and experience the wild on a weekend. So this is 26, I like that number for some reason, 26 ready-made weekends in the UK, uh, which include how to get somewhere, the walk-in, the quirky place to sleep, every single one has a quirky place to sleep, uh, and then come back in time for work on a Monday morning. So every other weekend for a year, you're set. Yes. That's awesome. Yes. Okay, next book, Wild Nights. 
Wild Nights is my first person sort of story of when I became the first person to sleep at all the extreme points of mainland Britain by myself on consecutive nights. On consecutive nights. On consecutive nights. And that includes the highest, the lowest, northern, southern, eastern, westernmost points and the centermost point of mainland Britain. And in that, I also find and sleep at the official middle of nowhere. (laughs) <laughs> the official middle of nowhere <laughs> where is that yeah <laughs> it's a grid reference you'll have to read the book to find out where oh, it that's is. fantastic <laughs> uh we interviewed roman dial and he spoke about doing that in alaska he found the middle of nowhere for alaska now that was really the middle of nowhere but uh next book <laughs> extreme sleeps so Extreme Sleeps was kind of the, uh, it's my origin story. So it's how I went from being a perfectly normal woman who liked to sleep on a mattress under a duvet and have a good night's sleep to now this crazy, addictive extreme sleeper. Right. That's awesome. And then the new book that is coming out right now, Britain's Best Small Hills. What is that? Well, I wanted to call this 60 Hills in the UK ripe for wild camping, (laughs) but I couldn't because, as we know, it's not legal. So (laughs) instead, this is just 60 best of small hills, 20 in England, 20 in Wales and 20 in Scotland. They all have added adventure to them. So they're great. Small hills are great to get people into the outdoors who aren't already invested in it. So it's great for kids. It's great for other halves, for friends, for parents. Take someone on one of these small hills and you'll sell them because it's maximum results, so amazing views, amazing history to them, but minimum effort. Um, and for the more adventurous, obviously, take your, uh, take your tent or busy bag with you. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> that's a lot of fun. Very, very cool. Now we should probably tell our listeners also how they can get more information about you. I'm going to start by talking about your website. It's uh, phoebe-smith, so phoebe-smith.com. And yeah. great website. You can see the books here. There's some blogs. There's other stuff, information about you. And it, it's a good website. So that's a great resource, phoebesmith.com with the hyphen. Uh, what about yeah. your social networking contacts? Um, well, if you want to watch any of my videos, um, I'm on YouTube as Extreme Sleeps, all as all one word. So it's just, and, and it's got its own URL. Uh, but again, you can find it on the website. It links through. Um, and I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Phoebe R. Smith. Um, again, you can find me through the website as well because people often misspell my name, believe it or not. <laughs> Phoebe R. Smith, which, by the way, is P-H-O-E-B-E. Smith, most people probably get. Yes, that's the, that's the easy <laughs> bit. I got, the, I got the easy surname, but my parents were like, no, let, let's give her the name that people can't spell for the first bit. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's a lot of fun. Okay, well, Phoebe, let's see. How else can people get in touch with you? You do public speaking. So if they are interested in having you as a keynote speaker or something, what, how do they reach you? Um, if you go onto my website, there's, um, there's a contact me page. Um, they can feel free to fill that in. And you'll also see a list of other places uh, where, where I've done talks. I've done talks for the Duke of Edinburgh, so Prince Philip. I've done them at um, St. James's Palace. Um, I do them in schools to try and inspire children. Um, I do them to corporate people to try and show them that there is life outside the nine to five. Um, and yeah, just drop me a line through my website. I'm always happy to uh, talk ideas. And I have to repeat what you said about how much the five to nine has impacted your nine to five. 
I love that. And yeah. I think that that yeah. sums up what this whole show has been about. And thank you so much for coming on to share that with us. I, I'm inspired. I want to go sleep in the backyard now. Yay! Then my work is done. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, what I love about it too, Phoebe, is that, you know, everyone has their own level of adventure and you don't have to go climb Mount Everest or K2 to have an amazing adventure and to enlarge your own life. And you've explained that to us, but your adventures have grown to some pretty amazing things because you got started closer to home with a challenge you felt like was a challenge that was the right size for you. I encourage all of our listeners to do the same thing. Really do that. It makes such a difference. So Phoebe, thank you for coming on the Adventure Sports Podcast and sharing that with us. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Oh yeah, it's been a blast. And for all the listeners out there, you know, I always say it. I encourage you, get out there and have some fun. And that might be you're just getting out there and sleeping under the stars for the first time ever. It will change your life. Coming up on Thursday's episode, Chris Warner is back with some incredible stories from Climbing K2. Until then, get out and have some fun. <laughs>